A couple things. If you're coming to Pumpkin Killing today, which we want you all to do, to come to Pumpkin Killing, uh, if you want to, I know it says 2 to 4.30. You could probably show up about 1.45 and then get up there and eat your pumpkin pie and carve your pumpkin and then we'll shoot. But you, so you can come a little early. You can come anytime during that. The the hay rides and the bus are going to be running the entire time. So if you need to leave, you can leave at any time between 2 to 4.30 as well. It's not like we drop you up on the hill and then you're just stuck. We actually have porta-potties up there this year. We promise not to launch pumpkins at it. No, we rented them. Yeah, I mean, we got to pay for them. We don't have the money to do that. All right, uh, best holiday of the year next week. You know what it is? Daylight savings. You get an extra hour of sleep. I probably shouldn't tell you that, so you guys would like show up on time. But it's wonderful. It's wonderful. All right, and also during this week is also a wonderful holiday during the year. It, it is called Halloween. Okay, now what we want you to do on Halloween is we don't want you to run off and go to some harvest festival somewhere. Just saying, what we want you to do is we want you to stay home if you don't have kids and hand out candy. All right, you get to know your neighbors and knock on your door. They're happy to see they come to you. It's amazing. And they're not Jehovah's Witnesses. It's great. (laughs) And now, and when you hand out candy, you give candy like Jesus would have given. All right? Don't give them the little butterscotch wrapped in the little yellow thing or or all the mints you stole from your dentist. You go out, you, you buy some good candy where they walk away going, that place must love Jesus because it's good candy. It's got chocolate in it or something. I'm not talking Tootsie Roll. That's not chocolate. Anyway, and if you have kids, go out trick-or-treating. You don't got to dress your kid up like the devil or something. You can dress as an angel. I don't just go out trick-or-treating because you get to knock on your neighbor's doors. They will open their doors. They'll be happy to see you. And they will give you candy. Isn't it amazing? Halloween is one of the best holidays in the year year for you guys to get to know your neighbors. And so don't run away from it. Stay home. Get to know your neighbors. Be missional. Live like a missionary in the neighborhood that you are. Oh, gave us a great holiday for it. So so there you go. All right. I better get out of here because Jonathan's really long-winded this morning. So uh, I'm going to introduce you to Jonathan Whitaker. He is one of our pastors here. He's one of our elders. If you don't know who he is, you probably see him drive around in what his wife likes to call the giant clown shoe car. You'll see it if you walk outside. I'm just saying. All right. Uh, but anyway, uh, this is Jonathan. He is one of our elders and one of our pastors here. And he deserves respect, people, even though he put this slide up behind me. Ladies and gentlemen, the musical stylings of Aaron and the Element Band. He's the one with his mic turned way down. So I can tell you've already noticed the Ron Swanson Pyramid of Greatness. There's no explaining this. I just thought it was funny. But here's what it is, basically. 2,000 years since Jesus Christ walked on this earth, and this is the best we could come up with for maximizing human potential. I'll point out that skim milk is on there twice. Avoid it. It's basically water. So welcome to Element. Uh, as Aaron said, my name is Jonathan Whitaker. I'm one of the elders here. If you're new here, welcome. If you uh, need a Bible and you don't have one, we have them in the back. If you don't own one, you can take one. We have, uh, if you have a smartphone, there's an app called Version. You can look us up by location. And there are sermon notes on the side tables. So if I look like I'm tired, uh, I will gladly introduce you to Miss Olivia Lee. So with us as of Monday... 
So I know it's hard to tell, but she's very smart and excels in sports. There <laughs> we go. Thank you. And the video guys are going, what is he doing? But uh, so the Bible's full of agricultural metaphors. You know, Jesus is the good shepherd. We as sheep have gone astray. So, I mean, I guess it's full of sheep metaphors. Uh, but if they were going to make one for me, I would be a farmer with a hen house, because that's my third girl. <laughs> but I'd like to thank you all for the prayers this week, and the meals have been wonderful. Uh, we just really appreciate all the, all the love and support. So, uh, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And this is Matthew 25 through 26. But Jesus called them and said, that you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but who would ever be great among you must be your servant. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, that we get to worship you again today. Please just open our, open our hearts to this message um, and just teach us how to lead as you demonstrated when you walked on this earth. In your holy name, Jesus. Amen. So I hope you're as excited as I am about the next couple of months or the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're, we're talking about all the different facets of, as, as Aaron said, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Sorry. <laughs> Got that out of my system. It's sort of a celebration of our, of our multifaceted Savior. And today I'm going to talk about Jesus as a leader. This is actually a topic I'm pretty interested in on a personal and professional level as an Air Force officer. Jesus, the servant leader. The model of leadership that Christ displayed was so intertwined with the concept of service that the terms leader and servant with respect to Christ could be synonyms. So there I was. About 14 years ago at basic cadet training uh, in a less uh, sanctified time of my life, I was participating in a leadership competition, believe it or not, the winner of whom would be declared the top cadet at the training camp. So during this course, um, through weeks and weeks, they do. They would uh, cadets would participate in knowledge challenges, tests, and various other high stress kind of evaluations. I participated in none of these. As it turns out, the sharp guy in my unit who did all this stuff self eliminated from training a week before the final interview, and so we had to send somebody. So they sent me. So off I went and presented myself before the council of colonels um, who would who would conduct the interview. And none of them knew that I just kind of strolled in off the street. So here's what they did. They asked me a series of six or seven general knowledge questions and one very personal question. So I guessed on all the knowledge questions. Uh, But the the last one was just an opinion, so I should be good to go. And here's what they asked. Who would you say is the leader that you would most like to pattern your personal leadership style after you become an officer? And I heard myself say it before I realized I had. Jesus Christ. Half thought I was serious, and the other thought I just uh, swore at my interviewers. (laughs) But they all asked the exact same follow-up question. Explain. So I did. And today I hope to atone for what I'm sure was not my finest hour. Incidentally, I won the competition. Which just goes to prove that Jesus is always the answer, right? So if you will indulge me, I'd like to uh, play a game of Element Jeopardy with you. Uh, the, the category is going to be Sounds of the 60s for 1,000 imaginary dollars. Okay, and your question is, or the answer is, right? Has anybody here sen- seen my old friend Abraham? Can you tell me where he's gone? He freed a lot of people, but it seems the good they die young. 
You know, I just looked around and he's gone. Remember, answer in the form of a question and participation is required. Anybody? Anybody? What's the name of that song? That's right, Abraham, Martin, and John. A guy who's visiting knew it. None of you guys. <laughs> so some of our more seasoned elementers will remember that ditty as Abraham, Martin, and John. Five points to the first person under the age of 30 who can tell me who those three were. Go public school. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., and John F. Kennedy. So these guys were all great American leaders whose deeds secured them a place in American history and our mythos. Lincoln, of course, led us through the Civil War and the ratification of the 13th Amendment, which did slavery. Okay, I'll just tell you. I'm not going <laughs> to test your history anymore, which ended, the, which ended slavery. Martin Luther King Jr. led us through the American Civil Rights Movement, which ended the Jim Crow laws in the South. And, of course, JFK led us on the space race with Russia, which ultimately took Americans to the moon. He also led Marilyn Monroe on a couple of tours of the White House, but the two events are unrelated. <laughs> yeah, I'll yeah, yeah. get some Democratic voters here. <laughs> so that's not exactly fair. He also, uh, he also <laughs> was instrumental in getting the Civil Rights Act passed, uh, which guaranteed full legal equality to all American citizens. It's fair to say that Abraham, Martin, and John will long be remembered as great American leaders. The impact of their leadership is still felt today. In, the, in a society where we, we, the very thought of slavery is revolting, civil rights are guaranteed to all American citizens, and we as Americans are a beacon for freedom for the rest of the world. But these men made a personal impact that transcends basic leadership. Americans lift these three up as being special above a multitude of lesser leaders. But why? It's, the obvious thread between these guys is they were all assassinated, Right? But is a spectacular martyrdom enough to secure their place in history? If all it takes to be considered a great leader is being killed in office, we would all remember President James Garfield for, you know, all that stuff he did. It's kind of like art. It's worthless until the, until the artist dies, right? That sort of concept. But there's got to be more than that. Leaders come and go, but the legend of some leaders endures. Tyrants are feared and remembered in, by history to serve as a caution to those who follow. I believe that Abraham Lincoln, MLK, and JFK are remembered as great American legends because, in their own flawed ways, they all reflected one or more char leadership characteristics that were first modeled by Christ. James Hunter, in his book The Servant, said, The true foundation of leadership is not power but authority, which is built upon relationships, love, service, and sacrifice. So the temptation when coming up with a sermon was to give you five easy steps to lead like Christ, sort of, a, sort of an infomercial. You know, it slices, dices, makes julienne fries. <laughs> Incidentally, uh, I, I met Ron Popeil in Solvang a few months back. He, I think he had wandered out of the as-seen-on-TV store. He's the spray-on hair guy. So, but this mentality somehow doesn't work. We must love like Jesus if we're going to lead like Jesus. With that in mind, here's what I want you to reflect on as I speak today. Reflect on what Jesus was able to accomplish as a leader, loving us the way he did. To narrow this topic down a bit, I want to discuss four characteristics that I think great leaders reflect and Christ perfect. perfects. First, a Christ-like leader is a servant. Second, a Christ-like leader has authority. Third, a Christ-like leader develops leadership in his followers and delegates that responsibility. And finally, 
a Christ-like leader, sacrifices for those he leads. You remember JFK said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Today, it kind of seems like it's, it's more, ask what you can get from your country, right? So Jesus was a servant in two key ways. He was first a servant to God the Father, and then he was a servant to those who followed him. Christ demonstrates his obedience to God the Father. Um, I think the best example is the night he was arrested. This is Luke 22, 42, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He's talking about death. The Father's will was death. Not your will, Father, or not my will, Father, but yours. Jesus yielded his own life on this earth to the will of his Father in heaven. This is critical to all facets of his life. He demonstrated obedience so that we would know how. God is our creator. We are the creation. We are not greater than he but we often act like we do. We are. If you, want to, if you want to serve others and lead others, you will be frustrated if you get this backwards. To serve others, you must first serve God. Thanks be to Jesus that he demonstrated this while he was on earth, or we might not know how to, how to obey and follow him. But Jesus was also a servant to those who followed him. John 13 says, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and head. There are four key components of how Christ served his followers. And the first was he understood the needs of those he served. Second, he met their spiritual needs. But to add impact to meeting those needs, he taught the enduring spiritual truth that backed it up. And he also met the physical needs of those he led. He didn't neglect that. John Ruskin, an 18th century art critic, says, What we think or what we believe is in the end of little consequence. The only, co- the only thing of consequence is what we do. That's a pretty ironic statement to a person who criticized art but never made any himself. And it's not true exa- exactly. In the case of Christ, what you believe is of supreme consequence. However, there is a kernel of truth there. If your faith never materializes in action, your beliefs will never contribute to the saving knowledge of Christ and another person. In that sense, what you do and what, with what you believe has eternal consequences. Turn to Matthew chapter 9, and we'll dig a little bit deeper into this. Jesus understood the, the needs of those he served. Remember what uh, he told us, and he told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So God knows each one of you in, intimately. More than that, Jesus communed with his disciples on a daily basis, so he had personal relationships with each one of them. He understood their needs because he took time to understand their needs. And here's my plug for GCs. If you want folks at this church to know you and understand what your spiritual needs are so people can minister to you, you, got, you have to make yourself available to be known. GCs, 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 GCs. That's right. But the important thing is that Jesus met people's spiritual needs first, understanding that they were far more important than just the physical need. Matthew 9, 1 through 8 says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over to his own city. And behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Why would he say that? These folks were clearly looking for something else, right? Like Forrest Gump said, magic legs. (laughs) Jesus was addressing the fact that the sin problem far outweighed the physical problem. And these, and these people came to him in faith, believing that he could accomplish only that which God can accomplish, healing. So he counted their faith to them as righteousness and forgave, at least in this, in this instance, the, 
the sins of the paralytic. But we know all who believe in their hearts are forgiven. We we always tend to get this backwards, though, right? Sin is the eternal problem, and pain is the temporary problem. But Jesus didn't just stop at the healing. He also taught this enduring truth. And we'll continue in in verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? It's pretty handy to be able to read people's thoughts. For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or or rise and walk. But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose rose and went. And the crowds uh, saw it, and they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus was able to convey his authority over sin and death by demonstrating his authority over sickness. Jesus made his service meaningful because he wove the gospel message into it. But Jesus was also a compassionate leader. He did care about the physical needs. Matthew 8, 1 through 4 says, And when they came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So I, miss, I mentioned this characteristic last because this is where we tend to focus, on the physical need. Let's be honest, pain is a priority. It's just a fact. Jesus' willingness to heal while he was on earth undoubtedly explains why he had such a large following of needy people. If you want to engender loyalty from those you lead, meet their needs. This is why nobody has a more loyal following than mom. Mom cooks us dinners, and she kisses our boo-boos. Everybody loves mom. And Raymond. <laughs> but when pain goes away, this loyalty can wane. In fact, in Jesus' life, sometimes when he'd heal folks, immediately they would disobey what he said. You know, I've healed you, go tell no one, then they go tell everybody. Right? But Jesus went beyond meeting those physical needs, and he, and he met those spiritual needs, and he taught the truth behind his action, the impact of which for those who believe at least, is eternal life. But Jesus served well because he led with authority, and he understood that authority. I want to, uh, I want to give you a, a definition here. And keep in mind that his authority was derived from his lordship as being fully God. This, this definition is authority, the right to control, command, or determine. Get in the, to get in the mindset of the people who witnessed Christ's teaching, uh, I want to turn to Mark uh, 1, 22 through 25, and I'll just read it. Don't, you don't have to turn there, but... Um, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. This is echoed in Matthew. The crowds were astonished at his teaching, as one who has authority, not as their scribes. So in Jewish society, scribes were spirit, had a high spiritual and social standing garnered from their profession. The scribes served as record keepers of society, and they were responsible for copying and recording scriptures. As a result of this professional task, they accumulated a great knowledge of the scripture. So in a, in a culture that placed importance on both knowledge and religious, religious ritual, scribes had elevated importance. So when a scribe spoke, it was assumed he had great knowledge on a topic. It was not, however, um, assumed that he had original knowledge on the topic. So when Jesus spoke, he was not merely regurgitating work of others, but revealing both new and old information as if he was the author or authority. John 12 makes this clear. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given, him, given him, him me a commandment to say, what to, say and what to say excuse me, and what to speak. 
And I know his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as my father has told me. In essence, God told me, I told you. So the President of the United States derives his authority from the U.S. Constitution and your votes, um, some of your votes. And uh, the CEO of a major company like Exxon derives his authority from the Board of Trustees and stockholders. Jesus also had a clear understanding from where his authority was derived. The Jews answered him, saying, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Jesus was fully God and fully man, so his authority was assigned by his deity. But he was also a part of a trinity, so he demonstrated obedience for us. John 10.27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is, is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I love that verse. It really kind of echoes with with our security and our salvation. But get that. I and the Father are one. As a man sent by God to minister to us, Jesus spoke on his Father's authority. So as a man, he he derived his authority from God. But he also demonstrates his own deity as as being part of the Trinity in in the scene where we see him raise Lazarus from the dead. So I I think this clearly is an example of both. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that, I'm, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And of course, you know the rest. So, so it's interesting that uh, for our benefit, Jesus demonstrated this obedience to God. But Jesus understood his authority and as innate to his deity, and at the same time, it had been delegated. We should all understand the implications of serving a God who has authority over death and the grave. When, God, when you serve a God that is greater than, than death and he delegates authority, you have truly been gri- given great authority. And this is why we see examples of Jesus developing his followers. This is sort of Jesus' m- missional focus on earth, how the work is going to be accomplished. Take what I have, give it to others, train them, teach them, and send them on their way. So here's a, here's a quote from a local boy. This is Harvey Firestone. And he says, um, the growth, that growth and development of people is the highest calling of leadership. So, professional development in the Air Force is, in more ways, um, resembles the divine comedy than anything you'd find in the scriptures. Uh, officer development is comprised of increasingly painful career development opportunities uh, that each comp- correspond to a different ring of hell. The deepest ring is called being a wing executive officer. In this post, you are assigned a colonel or a general who, in, Dan- in Dante's Inferno, is represented by a devil. In this case, your own personal devil who tortures you 16 hours a day, six days a week, with the scariest, most diabolical, most draconian staff work imaginable. But when you're done, you get to be a colonel yourself and torture someone else. So it's kind of the circle of life. (laughs) Jesus, in a more benign way, developed his disciples to take the mantle of leadership. So there are three activities that were associated with this. First was calling future leaders. Second... He trained those leaders whom he called. And third, he empowered them to do the work and to lead. 
So let's, let's look at calling future leaders first. Mark 1.16 says, And passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. So that's a pretty dramatic way to call people. Uh, but, but God has given us ways to, to call people just within sort of our, our circles uh, in more interpersonal ways. But Jesus had that authority of his deity, so he said, Drop what you're doing, follow me, and they did. So he sort of called his disciples the way Brad Pitt called baseball players in, in Moneyball, right? None of these guys were superstars, but they were all sort of role players. He called a team that would just simply get the job done, but he knew that they would get the job done because he's going to make the investment in their lives, and that investment included training. So here's a glimpse of that training. This is Mark 4.10. And when he was done, those around him with the 12 asked him about parables, and he said to them, to you has been given a secret of the kingdom of heaven. In this vignette, Jesus was with a small group of people, and he was discipling them. So he took the time to give them special instruction. Now, that's different than teaching to a large group like this, right? In a couple of, a couple of important ways. First, in the small group setting or the one-on-one setting, you can get that sort of feedback and interaction. You can, you're, as, a, as a disciple, you can ask your mentor uh, questions, and you can get the answers to those questions. And then as a person who is transmitting your authority to somebody else, you can test them and, and give them uh, guidance as they go through the, the fledgling steps. So Mark 6-7 talks about empowering future leaders. And he called the 12 and began to send them two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So he, he sent them and he, gave, and he transmitted his authority. So up, up to this point, casting out demons was a one-man show. Jesus, if you had a demon, he was the guy. It still is, but Jesus allowed the 12 to do the work in his name. The authority was derived from Jesus and delegated to the disciples. So there's an example in Acts of people trying to cast out demons. Sons of the priest were trying to cast out demons without having the Holy Spirit and the delegated authority of Christ. What ended up happening was the demon basically jumped them, stripped them naked, and sent them running through the streets. So if you're going to do the work of Christ without his authority being delegated to you, you should probably wear a belt. Okay, so next slide. I want to show you this. This is called the Leadership Reaction Course. Now, there's a professional development um, requirement that all officers have to go through. It's called Squadron Officer School. It's down in Alabama and sometimes in the heat of the summer, which is when I went. And, and one of the thing, what it is is basically a, a lab for, for officer development and leadership development. Now, what the LRC is is a blind obstacle course with a word problem. It's got elevation ropes, uh, weights, heights, and a time limit, and you're basically trying to solve a word problem. So a team must work together to solve this problem, but there's only one leader. The team's success depends on that leader's ability to overcome confusion and the unknown in a timely manner. It's what you don't see in the LRC that defeats your team. A good leader will trust the eyes of those deeper in the course to allow them to make a decision for the team. The only way a group can make it through the LRC successfully is by delegating authority and trusting others. Acts 1, 4, and 5 says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Certainly, Jesus can save the world by himself, but he decided to put together a crack team to accomplish some of this work, a team which he called the salt of the earth uh, in the city on a hill. He's talking about the church. 
At this point, I was really tempted, since I called you a crack team, was uh, operating in the Los Angeles underground. These men became soldiers of fortune, you know, the (laughs) A-team. If you could find them. But this is an example of delegated authority, right? I think one of the best examples of this is Peter at Pentecost. So Pentecost is, is after the apostles receive the Holy Spirit, right? So they have this power, they've been imbued with the power, and they've, they've, they've been given their call. And this is Peter uh, preaching for the first time, and this is in Acts 2. Uh, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed, a, addressed them. Men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, men of Israel, hear these words. Brothers, may I say to you with confidence... On that day, under the direction of Christ, with the Jesus, I mean, Peter boldly addressed this crowd of thousands. This is a city, in a city where his associated, associate was just executed as a criminal for doing the exact same thing. But Jesus transmitted that authority and, and delegated this authority and trained Peter. And on that day, over 3,000 people received salvation and accepted Jesus as their Savior. Jesus delegated this type of authority to all believers with the Great Commission. As we see in Acts chapter 1, he also equips the disciples with the Holy Spirit, thereby giving them the means with which to carry out their mission. The elders here at Element value leadership development in this flock. Training bold leaders for Christ is a key component of discipleship. In a nutshell, here's our process. Future leaders are found serving in our GCs. Those leaders eventually lead GCs of their own. Our GC leaders practice the disciplines of pastoring and are called to be deacons and ministry coordinators. Once they have been observed for a time, these deacons and lay leaders we call to be elders at Element, and our elders are developed into pastors. To fully appreciate um, Christ's servant leadership, we must understand the sacrifice that he made for those he led. Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, and JFK have a place of honor in American history, the same way the names of John Wilkes Booth James Earl Ray, and Lee Harvey Oswald own the distinction of infamy. These three assassins galvanized the legacy of honor by which we remember Abraham, Martin, and John. The three heroes understood the risk of of the things they were doing, but that's where the similarity of their deaths and the death of Christ end. Pilate and Caiaphas certainly played the part of assassin in Jesus' story. But Jesus was not a mere man like JFK, MLK, and Lincoln. At least in the case of JFK and Lincoln, we know that these men actually went to great lengths to preserve their lives, using bodyguards and elaborate protection measures. But Jesus was God incarnate. Pilate and Caiaphas could not have killed him unless he himself allowed it. Jesus willingly gave himself up for us because he understood that he was the necessary sacrifice that was to be made to pay the penalty for our sins. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I think shepherd and sheep, as we were talking about earlier, are a great analogy for sacrificial leadership. Sheep are stupid. A sheep will stand in a field full of yummy green clover and get its head stuck in a fence trying to eat a weed on the other side. Sheep are also the least threatening mammal on four legs. Unless you happen to be allergic to wool, you have nothing to fear from a sheep. Mutton is delicious. A shepherd can watch a flock of tens to hundreds of sheep, and he does this knowing how stupid they are. But Jesus wasn't talking about a shepherd in the U.S., right, in the relative safety and calm uh, and security that you know, we have here. Consider the shepherd of the ancient Near East. He tended his herds in a wilderness where he was the lone defense against wild animals and murderous thieves, the latter of whom would just as soon kill him and steal his property. The shepherd knew the stakes. 
Remember, this is how King David got his start. He started as a shepherd, cutting his teeth, killing lions who would attack his flock. In this story, you are the sheep. I guess I am too. So John 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus, our shepherd, was aware of the dangers and understood the risk. And then he made the decision to do what had to be done in order to benefit his flock. His stupid flock with our heads stuck in the fence trying to eat weeds. The truly amazing part about this is the only thing that qualifies us to benefit from Christ's sacrifice is his love for us. That's a good shepherd. Jesus often spoke in parables to explain things like the kingdom and sacrifice. And one I'd like to share with you is, is about a pearl of great value, and this is in Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. In this parable, the, king, the kingdom of heaven and the merchant refers to Jesus. He is the kingdom come to earth. The pearls are people who would put their trust in him for the salvation of their sins. The pearl of great value is us, his church. These are all the people who have invited him into their hearts as believers. So when the merchant sells all that he has, he's referring to his own life. Jesus sold his very life to secure the church, you and me. The definition of sacrifice is giving something of great value for something that is considered of great worth. God the Father considered you of such great value and such great worth that he sacrificed his son, who is of unsurpassing value, so that you might be saved. Jesus himself willingly took on the penalty for those he led. As Martin Luther King said while sitting in a prison cell, a man who won't die for something is not fit to live. It's hard to put yourself in the shoes of a person who was crucified. That's kind of hard for us to understand. It's a pretty complex thought, but consider that Jesus also made personal sacrifices on a day-to-day basis. The first 30 years of his life, he was a carpenter, a tradesman. He left that life of relative security for basically poverty so he could minister to each one of us, the people he loved. He loves us. We must love people, and we must love the people we lead. Turn with me to Colossians 3.12. There are two challenges that I want to focus you on sacrificing as Christ sacrificed for us. And think about this in context of your family. First, leading people that a great sacrifice was made so that they can enjoy life everlasting may require straight personal sacrifice. Your leadership in your home is crucial to the salvation of your family. Modeling sacrificial service to your little ones and spouse is an excellent way to serve Christ. Remember, he came not to be served, but to serve. If you want your children to understand what they have heard about Jesus, your actions imitating Jesus may be the only way. Second, Jesus genuinely loved the people he served. Jesus genuinely loved the people he served. If you find loving people difficult, leading them will be a tough proposition. Is loving people about what we can get or what we can give? Remember, your children are a blessing. You've got to remind yourself sometimes. Your children are a blessing. (laughs) Even when they compete with things we'd rather be doing. I've got three girls, and sometimes watching football, you know, you understand, right? Guilty. Chris Rock once said, When I hear people talking about juggling or the sacrifice they make for their children, I look at them like they're crazy. Because sacrifice infers that there was something better to do than being with your children. 
Jesus genuinely, genuinely loves us, so spending time with us was not a sacrifice to him. I think we can learn from Jesus that, that sacrifice is denying ourselves in order to benefit others and their needs and their desires. Sacrifices are that material way that we can live out our faith that's within us. People are drawn to a leader who denies their, his own needs in favor of theirs. Jesus demonstrated his love for us by sacrificing on the cross. So you and I can demonstrate his love for those we lead by making personal sacrifices for them. Colossians 3.12 Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complained against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Let's face it. It's much easier to go about your day and not get involved in people's lives, but you've been called to do it. If not us, then who will demonstrate his sacrificial love for this world? So, when I was in college, I had to kind of sing for my supper. And what I mean by that is, my freshman year, my mom made me join the choir so I could get in-state rates, because was, I lived in Virginia and I went to school in Mississippi. So, anyways, this experience benefited me, I'm sure, but... Uh, <laughs> And one way it benefited me was we got to sing Handel's Messiah uh, my freshman year. So for those of you who went to Cal Poly, that's the Hallelujah song, okay? <laughs> so during the overture, uh, there's a part where it goes, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. There's a verse on there I'm going to need to read, and you've just taken it from me. <laughs> King of kings and Lord of lords. And you get the sense that God is coming in his strength. Jesus is coming as a king to conquer. That's what this overture kind of implies, and it's, and it's quoting Revelation. So it's talking about future events that are really going to happen. So be prepared for that. But remember, the kingdom of heaven has already come, and he came as a servant who understood his authority and who served those he led and then ultimately sacrificed for them. So, okay, I'm in the military, so you get one patent quote. Paul tried to talk me out of this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Fixed fortifications are the monument to the stupidity of man. So, what, so Patton was a tank guy, which means, so in his mind, as soon as armies were able to maneuver and bring massive firepower, walls were no, no longer a protection, right? So if you're going to wall up inside a place, it's just a monument to your stupidity. Don't let the walls of this church be your monument. Jesus has called us to lead. That means we need to get out in the streets to lead people. We need to make an impact in our homes and our places of business and lead people. And it's not going to happen in here. Come get filled up, but take it out to the streets. Romans 10, 14 through 16 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of good news. So as we come to communion today, I want you to remember Jesus the leader. As we take the cracker and break it, remember a servant whose body was broken for us. As we dip that cracker in the wine or the, the grape juice, remember that his blood paid that penalty and demonstrated his authority over sin and death. And then, as we leave here today, Take it to the streets. Remember, God has called you to be a leader in some way, be it in your home or in your community or in your place of business. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all the ways that you have demonstrated uh, leadership uh, as you walked on this earth, Lord. We thank you 
that you've delegated this authority to us. Um, please just equip us to take up that mantle and um, back the gates of hell, Lord. We understand that, that uh, this place can become a monument. Just let it, let it not be that, Lord. We just give you honor and praise, Jesus. Thank you. Amen.